0: All right. Well, hello everybody, and welcome to today's session of Two Points of View at Two. Uh, Thank you all for tuning into this webinar. I think in the past these webinars may have felt like uh, a break from meetings and other face-to-face stuff, but now they probably feel a lot like business as usual. Uh, Here you are on a (laughs) yet another Zoom session, um, just a different uh, pair of folks uh, uh, on the talking side. So. I'm Rex Black. For those of you who don't know, I'm president of RBCS. We are a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, we have delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. We have a team of international consultants that deliver customized training, consulting, and expert services to companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. And in this session, I am happy to welcome a good longtime friend of mine, Jose Mata. Jose has worked over 20 years as a software quality assurance consultant and manager working in Austin, San Francisco, New York, and Paris, and I'm proud to say I had something to do with some of those locations. Um, As a member of the ASTQB Technical Advisory Group, Jose wrote questions for the foundation level qualification exams, and he is currently a senior software test engineer at Narrative DX, or is it Narrative Docs? Um, yes, yeah. Narrative DX, an internet startup in Austin, Texas, providing AI-driven analyses of healthcare data. So that's uh, cool. We got a good good word in there, a good uh, abbreviation in there, AI. Um, so in this presentation, uh, we will... Uh, um, move the selenium or selenium if you want to mispronounce the word uh, <laughs> automated testing from concept implementation and uh, the way that jose is going to do that is he's going to give you some tips on overcoming some basic gotchas involved in bootstrapping selenium testing so um if you have any questions uh during the course of the webinar please submit them at any time and we well jose through, through the intermediary of me will answer them right at the end so um We'll jump right into it here. Um, Here you've got the uh, intro information. Of course, this will be available, uh, the slides will be available as part of a uh, recorded webinar and um, also uh, posted on our um, uh, website. And uh, I'll go to the topics that uh, Jose wants to uh, address, these these gotchas, and uh, I will hand it over to you, Jose.
1: All right, thanks, Rex. It's good to be here. Thank you. And, um, so, uh, when Rex asked me to uh, talk about something with uh, this automated testing, the, one of the first things I thought of is that when I got started, uh, I would read anything that I could, and I'm going to pronounce it Selenium because that's what everybody <laughs> in uh, in the software world calls it. And yes, I do know that's that's technically incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Yeah, named for the moon, Uh, anyways, in in Greek. Uh, When I first got started, uh, you would just read um, anywhere uh, that, oh, it's easy, you just, you know, you you look for uh, IDs to locate uh, web elements, uh, and uh, no problem, then you go and you you grab that and you work on it, uh, and uh, you move on. the reality, when, when, once I started actually testing, reality hit me in the face I said, oh, uh, a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of the code doesn't actually have the elements uh, in there. It's not coded in. And there are a lot of cases where it's not practical uh, to use uh, IDs to identify web uh, elements. Uh, anytime that, the, that, um, that some of the code is repeated, right, if you have, say, a template for a modal, and you're changing out part of the modal, uh, but let's say that the, the uh, OK or cancel buttons are part of the template, then you 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 would not necessarily be getting the right element. Uh, so you have to You have to figure out a way to get around that. Um, I've also run across cases where uh, they will uh, the the code will uh, auto generate the ID. It'll it'll add in uh, <laughs> uh, identifying um, data to the to the ID game so that makes it hard to do because it's it's going to be changing uh, one of the solutions is if, if you have access to the code and in this job I do have access where I can actually go in and add IDs uh, but um, previous jobs I haven't been able to do that uh, so uh, kind of just want to talk about uh, ways to get around uh, all this so uh, if I guess they're, <laughs> we're not really taking questions as we go, so I'll just keep talking. If that's if that's good, Rex, or you can you can chime in if you have any.
0: Yeah, if if you'd like to take questions as they come in, I'm happy to throw them to you. I'm watching the Q and A panel. Usually we take them at the end, but uh, uh, if you if you um, you're open to answering them as they go, I will uh, when you get between thoughts um, throw the questions at you.
1: Okay. Well, uh, why don't we do it this way? Um, why don't we do it per uh bullet point? Sure. And then, uh, but if you had anything where you think I'm not being, or if you just had a question as I'm uh, discussing, then why don't you chime in at that point? Sure. What I may, question? I may well do that. Yeah. Okay. So I'll move on. So, uh, when you cannot, um, locate by, uh, let, let, let's take the, the example of the, the, the modal, uh, and, uh, Current job, we, we use actually a framework called Vue, V U E, and it is a templating uh, framework. So you see this a lot, um, and uh, what you can do though is you can use a class name, uh, which uh, is not unique to a, an HTML page, um, and so that's a that's a disadvantage. <laughs> but at least uh, at least now you have something you can target when you're uh, locating a web element. Uh, so um, once again, if you if you have the capability of adding the class name, you can do that. The next thing that you have to do is uh, now because it's a class name uh, is not unique to the DOM to the uh, HTML page. Um, you have to be more specific in which element that you're uh, that you're looking at. So um, that is where uh, XPath is your friend. Uh, I I know that um, some people prefer to use CSS selectors. Uh, I ex- almost exclusively use XPath, uh, which is a very powerful tool. And uh, you can go online and find out a lot of Im- uh, information on XPath uh, to select uh, web elements. And hopefully, I'm not just talking Greek there to you, Rex. Uh, are you? Kind of following
0: that uh, yeah and I was kind of wondering you say okay I can do it this way or I can do it that way is, is it really just a matter of taste like which you, you know you get comfortable mm-hmm. doing it one it's, way or the other
1: uh, I am 90% sure that it is a question of taste so if you're more you know if you're more in the CSS if you're more CSS knowledgeable it's just gonna be more natural for you
0: I uh, see. everything
1: that I've read um, like on stack overflow which is always your friend yes <laughs> <laughs> for sure, <laughs> is that people? It's basically it's like Mac and Windows. So you just you have your 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 preference and your expertise. Mine is in X uh, So would
0: it would it make sense then for an organization to sort of stylistically ask that the, everybody in the team do it one way or the other, just for consistency of scripting?
1: Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, no. actually, just makes sense, right? yeah uh, um you know uh, there's there's I don't think either one is harder than the other. It's just a question of you know you get your your set of functions, uh, which you'll know, talk about well are we gonna talk? yeah, the last bullet point is talking about uh, locator and helper functions. yeah, so you would design those to be you know xpath uh, centric or CSS selector selector centric.
0: Cool. Well, let's talk about that when we get to that bullet. Then and uh, how yeah. it varies one from the other.
1: Yep. So, uh, and the nice thing about XPath is that you can actually, uh, if you consider uh, ID to be uh, a type of, of uh, attribute uh, versus class name, you can actually embed that uh, into an XPath string that you're searching for. So, people who are watching, uh, listening to this, will probably just have to take notes and then go searches online to know, know what I'm talking about. It's a little too deep to get into right here. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the the next thing that I really want to talk about uh, regarding XPath and something I didn't learn right away, and it's not in any of the just online information that's not a tutorial, is that you can um, you can make an XPath string uh, select on more than one one piece. as as part of your overall selection. So, um, without being able to give you something visual, I'll just say, for example, you're looking for a class name called foo, (laughs) right? Well, foo is gonna show up, you know, a couple of places. Now, you can actually set up the string so that you actually look for a specific descendant of foo, for instance. that uh, will identify a specific web element as opposed to just every uh, instance of foo. Um, so, for instance, if you're if you're in the in, in Chrome, and I guess most people right now are developing in Chrome, and if you're looking at um, if you're searching through the HTML, if you're doing a find in there, for instance, you can find on cl- class name that you care about, and you might say, oh, it, it actually shows up four different times. Well, that means that when you're running the test, it can be getting any one of those four, kind of just depending on, on the way that it executes. Uh, so you have to be more specific at XPath is your friend for doing that. <laughs> so uh, that that took me you know, uh, <laughs> a little bit just to um, ask around and, and uh, figure out that I could be able to be more specific than that. Uh, back uh, when I, First started when I was um, in reading things. I'd say, "Oh, don't use XPath. It's slow and it's uh, it's messy and so on." But this is one of the the only ways that I know of. uh, Well, again, with CSS selectors, that you can uh, get the specific element that you need, and that's uh, you can't really do anything unless you have you know what you're working on. So that's actually that and we're uh you know we kind of i need to move on a little bit i guess uh can i move on rex Sure, yeah please okay Uh, um so let's talk about
0: uh we did have a question here that came up um from colin he said is he talking about expats um obviously you were talking about expats i i don't i think he was alluding to some specific statement that you made and asking whether it was in reference to XPath, perhaps in contrast to CSS, you're saying yeah. you could do it, you can do pretty much anything
1: either way, right? Yes. Yeah, like I said, I'm not a real CSS selector kind of guy, but yeah, as far as I understand, yes.
0: Yeah, but you, your preference just just because it's your preference is is XPath.
1: Right. And uh, he might have, uh, Colin might have been wondering because I did say if you're looking for a class name uh, as I was kind of saying it's hard if you can't see the, the actual code, but embedded into an expat string, uh, you can specify um, that you're looking for Class within that or ID is wow. part of it and then you can say After that you can slash flash and then look for the next piece that you're looking for got it. So uh, Yeah, so that's that that's, was what he was asking. He said, thanks. Thanks, Jose you're welcome yeah um, so yeah digging into that and I, I that's there's a there's a there's a pretty good course in in the making in there i think uh yeah works. yeah uh so moving on i guess just for time um so another thing that i learned this is for once again this is basically for beginners right uh and there's almost always different ways to do things and i wouldn't be surprised if there are better ways but this is how I got unblocked when I was starting to <laughs> bootstrap. Um, there's something um, called expected conditions. Oh, here's another thing. Um, I uh, on this particular job, I'm I'm using uh, Python bindings. The previous one I used Ruby. Uh, it's similar but different in Java. So some of the names might be a little different. Mm. But uh, there is there is a set of um, uh, modules in Python. I guess libraries. Uh, that you can use uh, to specify whether you want uh, to find something for an element being clickable, whether it's visible, whether it's just present in the DOM, Um, and and that that kind of stuff. Uh, That's really useful for when you're debugging the the test, right? Because then you'll know uh, whether or not, especially if you're running headless, right? Uh, where you can't actually see what's what's happening, uh, you'll know whether or not it was actually the the element was visible, right on the screen or not. Yeah. At that time, uh, I know I'm kind of <laughs> saying a bunch of concepts at one time for beginners, so I apologize for that. But the the takeaway from this is uh, look at look at um, what Selenium gives you with regard to expected conditions. Uh, they will definitely be your friend uh, mm. and let you know precisely what it is that the uh, the state of the element is so mm. uh, I guess i 'll just leave it at that just because uh we need to keep moving unless do so no, you want to
0: no uh, no no questions coming up uh with respect to that um I could take us down a rabbit hole on this thing, but I, I think, uh, <laughs> well, in the interest of time, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: No, uh, yeah, because I, I want to leave some time at the end uh, so we don't blow out somebody's time because they might be just taking a little bit of time at work. Right. Uh, um, although with COVID-19, you know, it's five minutes. <laughs> 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 I work done. make it up at the end uh okay the next point is uh another gotcha um is dealing with alerts so when i first uh i think we all know what alerts are right it's it's a message that pops up on the screen and it uh, usually will be for an error condition that kind of stuff uh when they show up uh let's say let's say that it has a certain amount of text uh that says um Error, you know, string not found or whatever. And if you were to go th- uh, query, go, go do a find on the HTML, uh, you would not be able to find that string, right? <laughs> and uh, so, if you if you wanted to test that the string that the the string is coming up on the on the alert, you're not going to be able to find it, or you you're not going to be able to dismiss it. And uh, nowhere, nowhere really is, is there, um, did I find information um, just generically when you're learning about uh, Selenium testing. Um, of course, you go through uh, Stack Overflow again and you'll learn how to get around it. But the, the basic <laughs> idea is that um, um, you, they, the alerts are not actually part of the, the, the browser page you have to uh, you have um, different functions that you can use to work with them right you can um, for instance in in the python variant of selenium you you have a function called switch to alert right and then then you can work on the alert you can uh, have a function called accept or dismiss for the alert but once again i just it's just it, it was kind of mind blowing to me that it's just, I expected it to be part of the Dom and I could work at it cause it's visible, but uh, they're different. Uh, once you know that. So, so um, how do you know,
0: like, okay, accept or dismiss or what, how, how do you know that the alert is up there? If, if, if Selenium's not able to observe that it's up there directly.
1: Yeah. So uh, it, you pretty much have to, um, Well, you're, you're, you're doing, um, this is for a positive test, (laughs) right? So you know that you expect there to be an alert and, uh, then you can actually, you can then switch to the alert through that function called switch to alert. Uh, if you, if you, uh, you can then, (laughs) uh, get the object, right? So an example would be alert equals, Driver dot switch to alert now you have the object which you've now called alert and now you can operate on it So, uh so you but you have to basically be
0: expecting it to happen if it's just if it's something Something that came out of nowhere uh You saying that would really trip up your your script
1: Yeah, it's the way that I'd handle it right now uh, and the plan is to get better at this but right now uh Almost all of my, my tests are regression tests, uh, and not even really regression tests, well, yeah. Uh, but anyways, they're, um, they're positive tests. So uh-huh. if, it, if, it, if an alert comes out of uh, sequence or unexpectedly, then I just throw an exception and then fail that particular test. Okay, so, so you would, all you would know is
0: something weird happened and I assume you'd be able to capture a screenshot of that, right? And say, this is, this is what the screen looked like when that weird thing happened. Mm-hmm. And then you would bail out of that test, that test would fail, and you'd move on to the next one?
1: Yeah, and I'm not sure about the Java variants, but uh, in, in, in Python, uh, you pretty much do not get the, uh, uh, the unexpected alert in a screenshot. Probably, I'm guessing here, I don't know this, no. Probably because it's not part of the DOM or something, uh, but uh, but you you can get the traceback though. Uh, it's pretty robust. Where the traceback will tell you unexpected alert. File. No, I see. So that's that's not so bad, right? So you throw the exception. You you go ahead and you uh, you say you log off the traceback, and then you should be okay.
0: And at that point, you have to basically do something to restore the system to a known good state before you proceed on to the next test, mm-hmm. yeah? You
1: know? Correct, yeah. Yeah, most most of the time at that point, uh, uh, I'll explicitly do a driver quit, so it'll, it'll quit that particular instance of the browser. And so the next test will start up uh, with a fresh one. Fresh browser, yeah. Yeah. So, Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. I don't want to spend any more time on alerts, but that's just a, a sure. just a reminder. Uh, so you know, don't go, don't think that you're being crazy you're, that you're being crazy by not being able to find, uh, that. So. <laughs> yeah. It must've been pretty, um,
0: uh, mystifying when that first started happening, right? Of like, oh, I can see it. What the heck is going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's
1: there. It's, yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. What's happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so um, then the other final one is just a generic uh, thought. Um, well, but before
0: we, before we go to the last bullet, though, I did have a question backing up to the expected condition uh, yeah. topic. Michael asks, is expected condition deprecated?
1: Uh, it's definitely not deprecated in, in the Python bindings. I'm not sure about any others. Huh. Yeah, I'd be surprised if it were because it's um, – I'm not sure what would take its place. <laughs> the
0: unexpected condition, the um, anticipated condition, the maybe-this-will-happen yeah. thing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, it I mean, does I seem know. like that's kind of like a, you,
1: know, you need to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, there's there's nothing else in the Python uh, implementation that would tell me whether something is visible or invisible or uh, present or, or or not, so... If, if it is deprecated, I, I haven't seen anything that would replace it yet.
0: Uh, Michael is saying he's using C++. And, mm. hmm. Yeah. I guess, well, it's... Yeah, I, so... You've not used that, right? You've used Java and...
1: No, uh, Ruby and Python. R- Ruby and Python, yeah. Yeah. Huh, hmm. weird. Okay. Well, that's that's uh, worth digging into. it would be nice to know. Uh, sorry.
0: <laughs> okay. okay. Well, let's continue on to the locator and helper functions. One.
1: Yeah, this is just a generic thing. Uh, I, it kind of more in your bailiwick in a way, Rex. Just because you, you're you're uh, always good about kind of talking about best practices, and this is very um, obvious to to a real developer. But I didn't start up as a real developer, <laughs> uh, as as quite a few. Uh, QA people are, and uh, it, it really makes a lot of sense to make um, locator and helper functions. Uh, so if you, if you want to say find by ID or find by class name, or if you want to uh, uh, do a, a, a simple set of steps um, that are generic. Um, I uh, I definitely find that it, it, it saves a lot of time because you can start adding in like uh, error handling in these functions. Yeah, that are a lot more specific that will help in debugging uh, again.
0: Yeah, I think uh, just from a general test automation point of view, the idea of having a lot of um, if there's stuff that you need to do multiple times encapsulating it in a function and having libraries of functions that allow you to do that is, is a, is a really good idea from uh, in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, I'm always, uh, pleased. Like, like I've done a, a, a number of assessments, uh, automation assessments over the last couple of years where, you know, I was pleased to see that, that, that the folks were doing that. They had been careful to do that. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, so yeah, this is more going to apply to like, uh, say, a previous uh, couple of jobs where I was uh, just thrown in and said, "We we need some uh, automated UI testing." <laughs> yeah. And you know, I didn't really think about this at first uh, until it just started becoming messy. And uh, now, just I just think that's that's something that, that somebody would have just. Reminded me that that's a good practice to do. And so that's my only point for bringing it up here. And there's, there's nothing really specific about it. It's just, um, you yeah. it's a good, good practice.
0: Yeah, just maintainability issues for sure. Um, I think this is um, a very, it's a, it's a common automation pitfall, exactly what you're describing, right? Is so I've, I've got an organization and maybe we're just getting, we're getting the product off the ground and it's really fairly straightforward at this point. And, you know, people have heard about automated testing. So like, yeah, let's start automating. And then you you start building out your automation and you're not always looking down the road. Right. And, and stuff then turns out to be problematic. As you say, it gets, it gets messy and, you start finding, wow, it's taking me a while to fix things, when I need to make changes and so forth. And I've seen this get so dysfunctional that the average amount of time required to maintain an existing automated test was equal to or greater than the amount of time to create a new test. (laughs) It's (laughs) kind of like, okay, guess what? You you have now broken your automation framework from a maintainability point of view. and by the time you get there, it's kind of like the the old uh, um, cartoons where where the, the, the coyote is, you know, he's already actually a good five or ten yards past the edge of the cliff before he realizes that he's run <laughs> off the edge of the cliff. And then has that looks down, gets the horrified look on his face, Legs stop moving and down he goes. Right, and I've seen that happen a bunch of times with automation. I guess right. we got a comment comment in here from Colin. We share your pain, Rex. So, yeah, this is a, this is a really common death spiral of automation, and I've seen it um, uh, a number of times. And it's really it's 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 kind of sad. I mean, in a way of it called in to do an automation assessment and I'm looking at it and I'm seeing these kind of metrics, like, you know, average time to maintain a test exceeds the time to create a new test and, and that sort of thing. And it's like, Oh boy, you, you guys are hosed. You know? Um, yep. it's, <laughs> I heard this great uh, joke from Mike Burbiglia the other day. He was talking about um, getting some sort of medical diagnosis and the doctor comes in and said, we found something in your bladder. And his joke was, you know, when the doctor says to you, we found something in your bladder, it's never a good thing. It's not like he's going to say, hey, I found season passes to the Yankees. <laughs> in Your bladder, you don't know. No. So when a consultant like me comes in and, you know, it's like saying, well, I found something really interesting with your metrics. It's not always uh, not always a good thing. Uh, <laughs>
1: That's apt.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, uh, so, oh, yes. so Gary, think, uh, my colleague, Gary had a question for you here. It's a little bit kind of, uh, on that topic of metrics it's, he's asking, do you have metrics on ROI for selenium testing or, uh, the, or the proportion of your projects where the ROI was very high? Um, I'm assuming Gary's talking about ROI just in the sense of it's saving you time with respect to how long it would take you to do it manually. Do you have any sort of sense on that?
1: Uh, no, actually, we're 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 a seventeen-person company, so <laughs> we don't gather uh, a lot of metrics at all. To yeah. Be but uh, it's been anecdotally uh, very useful. There, the the scenario is generally where um, uh, we 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 have a debt bill. And uh, something changed that uh, I would have never thought of even in the release test uh, because it's so, so kind of down uh, into, the, into the weeds of the code mm-hmm. uh, that I would not have uh, thought that I needed to test it for a particular, let's say a bug, uh, let's say a hotfix, right? Yeah, uh, that's, that's a bad example because a hotfix is a lot more targeted. But let's just say a release and, uh, and it catches, those kind of bugs where it should not have broken, there's no reason to focus on that, but uh, the testing is there for for hmm. you know every bit of functionality. So how do you how do you measure that in you know, ROI? It's hard.
0: Well um, what you're what you're talking about there is defect detection. And you know if you have an idea of what your what your cost of a defect detected in production is relative to the cost of the defect detected prior to release, you can get a measure of that. Mm-hmm. Usually when I work with clients on on looking at ROI for automation, there's, there's kind of the big three things that they're trying to do. They're trying to reduce the total effort required to achieve a given level of coverage or risk mitigation. Um, they might also be trying to reduce the cycle time, how long it takes to run through their tests. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that's even more important to some of my clients because time to market is is huge like one of my clients somehow or another they had this number that it cost them two-thirds of a million dollars every del- day of delay they had in releasing their medical device uh, yeah two-thirds of a million dollars right so they were really, really focused on how do we make our validation cycle shorter because you know as you know i believe you've worked in regulated medical before right if you got to have one clean pass through all your tests with them all passing at the end before you can release. they're like, well, it takes us two weeks to do that now. Right. So it's like 14 times two thirds of a million dollars, you know, for every, every extra cycle that we have to do, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the, then the third metric is often related to defects of what's, what's the cost of, of a defect that escapes. But a lot of times with automation, that's not really the right metric to look at because, um, you know pesticide paradox says, I run the same set of tests over and over again, and eventually I stop finding bugs with them, you know um, so I always, I always discourage clients when they're using you know number of defects found by the regression test as their primary metric of ROI for their automation. I say, that's in the long term, that's not going to turn out too well because what you're really trying to do is, is accomplish the the opposite. <laughs> Right. Getting to a situation where your code is so stable and your your maintenance process is so predictable that you're not finding any defects and your automation is part of how you get there. So you don't want the ROI, of the, the, the way you measure the ROI of the automation to push you in the opposite direction of what you really would want to accomplish.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because, uh, you know, it, in general, uh, it makes the most sense to to do positive tests for uh uh, automated tests. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about. We're specifically talking about Selenium, so it's speaking about yeah. UI focus. Uh, but what I find really interesting is that uh, I can also run some automated tests that are essentially API level tests. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a module where you can do HTTP requests, and I I uh, find it more fruitful to put negative tests within that uh, within those tests. Uh, so it's actually deeper testing, uh, with the API non UI, uh, level automated tests. Uh, but you know, that, sometime maybe we could talk about that, uh, yeah. <laughs> virtually over scotch <laughs> or something because uh, it just seems like it, it pays off better. Uh, once you take out some of the, the UI aspect uh, of it. Hmm.
0: But,
1: yeah.
0: So I got a uh, question here, which I think is kind of a good way of, um, of winding this up, um, unless there are further questions that come in, but uh, Colin says, thanks for having this session. Is there a plan to host a more in-depth session for beginners and intermediate users? Um, And I guess the the answer to that would be, well, you know, we do offer a training that covers this topic over three-day hands-on training. Um, So, you know, we would hope that people would check that out and maybe, maybe look at that. Uh, you know, I feel like this, this is stuff that, um, that would be covered in that. Um, as far as doing another, another session on, on these kinds of topics, um, you know, I guess, uh, depends on Jose your availability and, um, level of expressed interest.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, but I would, I would definitely, uh, recommend that uh <laughs> that course i'm a bit biased but uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of the authors yeah yeah but uh yeah it's interesting though because i, I you know I was definitely the the junior um technical person on that one mm-hmm. and i learned a lot uh because it's it's yeah it's good material
0: yeah yeah and I, I i would hope that it was the um kind of like that's what you what what you need to know to parachute in and be um, be able to participate, right? As an automator.
1: Correct. Yeah. yeah. That's that is uh, yeah. I was only alluding to some of the the uh, material in there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, in, in this time frame, yeah, that's why it's it's. You say it's a three-day course. <laughs> Isn't it three or is it two? I can't remember, but. Um, I never actually taught it, so Jamie would know. Yeah, Jamie would know. I haven't taught it either. It's a, it's the Jamie teaches it. I think it's three days. Um, yeah. Well. Wow. Yeah. So that's that's how you can actually get into the into the meat of it. Yeah. Really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I had some guy come up to me at a conference and say um, he was going to start doing a lot of Selenium automation, and and he he went to his boss, and his boss was like, "Oh, yeah, yeah. i I've heard that stuff's really easy." Uh, you just need to have all of your, your people, his testers, right? Who are all completely non-technical, right? They had no, they had zero technical background. The guy said, you need to have your testers watch a bunch of free YouTube videos. um, And that, that will be adequate to um, get them started. And I said, I said to the guy, I'm going to go out on a limb here and make a big prediction that that's going to be an utter fail. (laughs) So (laughs) that's, that's not going to work. I said, if you had people who had extensive programming and test automation experience and the only thing they were doing was a minor gear shift from one automation tool to Selenium, that would be one thing, right? But you're talking about, you know, helping people become automators you know, that's a, that's a, that's not a gear shift. That's a mind shift, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there, there are actually two, two domains that are important if you're, if you're doing it from scratch, right? There's being able to be a good overall tester. And then the other is all of, all of the actual coding that's involved. It's, it's, I'll be honest, it's lightweight coding, but it's still coding. Right. Uh, and if you if you don't have that mindset or that that's those skills, uh, you're going to fail.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it, as you said, it is important that you have both. That uh, we're working with a client right now. We have we're running this test design with BDD training for them, and and the reason for that is that they they sort of took um, um, the approach of saying we're gonna focus on the technical side of the automation, we're gonna automate a bunch of tests. And they achieved a lot of automation, but then what they found was, wow, we still have this insane defect escape rate. Um, And it was like, well, yeah, of course you do, because you did it, See, you, they approached it the exact opposite way. They were like, we're just gonna have our developers automate tests for all the code they write. And never taught them anything about you know, good test design or implementation. So they just went off and started flailing around, created a bunch of tests, but they weren't very good tests. So you're, yeah, that's a good point. You have to have both, both skills. Mm-hmm. And I just got a confirmation here from Dina. She says, yes, the course is three days. So yeah, three to three day course. Um, I believe we have virtual sessions of that schedule coming up if people are interested. So and they can find it on our website. Well, we, we ran a little long, um, but I wanna thank you for uh, sticking with it, Jose, and for your uh, presentation. I'm sure people got a lot of good information out of it. Gary, Gary's saying thanks for the session. Great job, Jose and Rex, so, thanks, Gary. Um, so um, I will uh, wind this down with a few words about, uh, about us, so you see the advertisement here. And so I hope you enjoyed our free webinar from RBCS. Uh, series continues. It's uh, been over 10 years and over 50,000 registrations for these webinars. So quite a successful thing and we're going to keep at it. Uh, We do these free webinars as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not just for profit company, but if you enjoy our free webinars and feel they demonstrate solid insights into the kinds of testing challenges you face, please do make RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services consulting or training happy to provide a quote for any such help you might need you can contact us info at
1: rbcs-us.com
0: so thanks again jose
1: so rex uh, i just sorry i just have to throw this in yeah uh, <laughs> rex and i go way back and uh, including that he he's the guy who put me in uh, paris in 2001 yes and, uh, so his crowning moments one time was we we're on the banks of the seine <laughs> And there's this Yugoslavian boyfriend, uh, somebody that worked there, uh, who who called Rex the capitalist American. <laughs> and Rex was never prouder.
0: Yes, I don't think he meant it as a compliment, but I certainly took it as one. It was. I uh, know.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. Was, I I remember that so well.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so do I. That that was that was immediately prior to the evening at the Three Mallets. Um, oh, yeah. uh, with the. Uh, The dancing, dancing girls on the, on the tables. Yeah, that was, it was quite a, quite a memorable evening, a (laughs) classic Paris moment. So so, uh, yeah, uh, that was, man, that was a while back. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Good, good, good time. But anyway, uh, thanks Jose for uh, taking time out of your day to do this and thanks to everybody for joining us and uh, look forward to seeing people on uh, future webinars. Peace. These out. All right. Out.